0: We're looking at some of the adaptations
1: that have made the War of the Worlds their own.
0: I don't know how many other things he did on radio, and he just turned up, did an hour-long radio programme that changed the, the face of, sort of radio
1: drama, and they just moved on. But they've obviously they've shifted their location over to, to the US. That, that is a common theme, by the way. Um, oh my- <laughs> <laughs>
0: You, you mean to say that the inherent cinematic appeal of Woking has not made it through into Steven Spielberg's vision? You astonish me.
1: Hello and welcome to Shark Liver Oil. Hi, Matt. I'm Dave. Hello. This is our uh, bonus podcast, Shark Cage, if you will, um, on hey. the War of the Worlds. We've done the War of the Worlds, the book, HUL's classic, Sorted, five parts. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed it. Five parts,
0: no waiting, (laughs) very little waiting.
1: And now um, we're doing sort of as a a roundup. We're looking at some of the um, adaptations in film and music that have uh, that have made the War of the Worlds their own, if you like. And uh, there's plenty to go up. So without further ado, I mean, there's a mixture of sort of films and obviously two musical soundtracks. Uh, If we start, and we start with the earliest one, which is the the radio broadcast. So, so in 1938, which isn't so, it's only like a good sort of 40 years or so after Mm. the actual book was released. Mm -hmm. The um, this American radio station did a, a a version, which was done as sort of a fake. It was basically a. I think uh, an hour-long show or something like that, which was music, were intercut with these, like, fake broadcasts saying the Martians are invading. Yeah. Um, which was which got a lot of publicity at the time. What do you know about this one?
0: I know that it was... So I know it was Orson Welles who did it. Um yeah. And that's a really interesting moment for this guy who was really like central to the the development of American popular culture in the 20th century and that he, one of the things he did as well as doing Citizen Kane which for many people sort of redefined what you could do with cinema um, I don't know how many other things he did on radio as far as I know, it was basically this. And he just turned up, did an hour-long radio program that was, had such an impact that it changed the, changed the face of sort of radio drama, and they just moved on and <laughs> went on and did amazing things elsewhere. Um, and it's a really interesting like, study of what happens when you present a story in a way that people aren't expecting to sort of come across it. Mm. Um, and it caused, like, mad panic by all accounts, didn't it? Like, you know, people were sort of calling the calling the police and going, what the, what, the, what the fuck's up with these Martians then? Sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. And you've got to feel sorry, haven't you? Because like, if you don't know that this was on the radio and you just get a sort of hysterical phone call at 9 o'clock and on an otherwise quiet Wednesday evening from somebody in the town going, the Martians, the Martians are coming, the Martians are here. <laughs> like yeah. That is a challenge for any public servant, knowing the appropriate way to respond to that, that particular phone call. Because <laughs> I'd laugh, and that's why I'm not a copper.
1: Yeah, you can actually um, you can actually get the whole thing on YouTube these days. Um, it's the the entire sort of broadcast, all the bits cut together, and it is yeah. So it starts with the sort of like reports of um, you know green flares coming out from Mars, and then you get various sort of reporters and correspondents who are in the thick of it and keep disappearing as like everybody gets killed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and and yeah, that, that's
0: commitment as well to it, isn't it? Because you could be you'd be well within your rights there to be like, oh, I think we'll dial back on some of the inevitable kind of death. Uh, yeah. Just you know, for for casting costs as much as anything mm-hmm. else. No, they <laughs> lent into that. They were like, right, you, you've got a ninety-second role, and most of it is screaming. Go, <laughs> right, next person. Basically, the same role, different voice though, and yeah. scream.
1: Go. yeah <laughs> yeah we'll put a link to it um to the uh t- to one of the youtube pages where you can actually listen to it all if you want to have a listen yourself um it was yeah so it did cause a lot of panic i mean it's disputed these days quite how widespread the panic was but i think if if <laughs> if you're the if you're one of the people who hears it and thinks that you know the world's ending, then, uh, you know, it it matters to you, doesn't it? Pretty panic. Pretty panic Yeah,
0: Yeah, (laughs) I I think that's actually an excellent breakdown of it. And I think most of the people who sort of say that about about this very famous kind of public panic at the time, a sort of misunderstanding, to a certain extent, the role that radio had in people's lives back then. Because it was the only form, it was the only live form of media that was a part of your life. Mm. Everything else Like TV hadn't really taken off Before the Second World War Um, Certainly outside of cities Um, You know You got the newspaper every morning Apart Mm. from that it was the radio This was definitely the format that you would find out About things through Mm. Um, And you only had one channel to find out About it with So yeah to be honest with you I find it quite hard to believe that it didn't In a sense didn't beget an even greater panic because hmm. I would have bought it to be honest with you. Back then, I'm pretty sure I would have been like, "This is terrible! Quick, break out the good whiskey! It's all over."
1: <laughs> the the reaction of the authorities and the media was certainly um, was was sort of panicky. The, the some of the actors um, recall sort of, as the broadcast going on, just, like, more and more police officers showing up at the studio saying, what are you doing? Take it off air. Which <laughs> <laughs> is <just> hilarious.
0: <laughs> and because it's Wells, you know that he was like, no, never, never. We're committed to the story here. A lesser person. I, re- I would quite have liked to have seen a version of this directed by somebody with less sort of an iron backbone, mm-hmm. trying to edit it on the fly to make it slightly more implausible. You know, <laughs> oh what do you want me to do to make it clear that this isn't really happening? I am already at alien invasion from walking tripods that burn people as soon as look at them. I mean, where do you want yeah. me to go?
1: Apparently apparently, some of the panic, and you got. I suppose you need to put this in its time, so 1938, obviously, um, only a couple of years before the uh, US are going to get involved in the Second World War, and um, apparently some people who heard it uh didn't hear didn't hear the sort of disclaimer at the start which said this was a drama and then didn't really hear much mention of the martians so just assumed it was sort of like a german invasion and like (laughs) like there's just these things coming through the you know some massive german weapons wreaking havoc in america so there were sort of two layers of panic to it one was oh no aliens exist and they're invading and the other layer was something's happening and it sounds like those people are being killed and this is our trusted form of media, so, oh, no. It's Um, probably the Germans. yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, well, which, I mean, I think that is also an interesting reflection, isn't it, on the thing we actually had in the book where you know, forty years earlier and on a different continent, a character steadfastly refuses to have anything to do with going abroad because she fears the French as much as the aliens. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's, yeah very funny and satire with a capital S. Um but uh I, I but the whole point of this and of most alien stories is about the kind of meeting point um between different civilizations and the fear of being unable to communicate. Mm. and so on, and I think that encapsulates rather well the logic that's still used, really, to justify warfare, is mm. to say, you know, quite apart from arguments back then, obviously, you know, this country's full of, you know, doing terrible things and must be stopped. Because mm. um, in the late 30s, people weren't hugely aware of all those terrible things that were being done. It's mm. more like... um We've got to, we've got to beat them. They're the others, so we've got to beat them in a war. Um, mm. And it doesn't surprise me at all, really, that you know, even in relatively isolationist America, um, it was still there was still this massive body of public opinion that was ready to believe that they were going to be at war with Germany tomorrow. Because in fact, of course, they didn't actually go to war with Germany until forty-two. I mm.
1: want to say, yeah and that was sort of as a consequence of going to war with Japan. Um, yeah, exactly. But, so, I mean, yeah.
0: it, the, the US never yeah. got into the war against Nazi Germany because of Nazi Germany directly, I don't think. Um mm. uh although although speaking as a European, very glad they did. Um but um but yeah, it's this interesting thing, isn't it, about like about tension and conflict and how close people feel they are to it that you can make a story about aliens and heat rays and fantastical kind of technologies and objects and stuff and people are like yep yep sounds like the germans sounds yep yep let's go
1: let's (laughs) germans are on yep yeah yeah so so that was um so the radio broadcast is obviously more famous for the controversy it caused and Actually, it's content, I suppose, these days. But still, well worth a well worth a listen. Um, so you got stuff of the. There's a bit where there's, there's a guy up in a plane as they try and bomb uh, one of the tripods. There's a guy down on the ground as the heat ray first attacks. And you know, there's mentions. It's quite quite faithful in terms of uh, to the book in terms of the weaponry that the um, that the aliens use and what they like the Martians. Um, but they've obviously they shifted the location over to to the US. Um, rather, than, uh, rather than England. Yeah. Uh, which moves us on to... that—that That is a common theme, by the way. Um, my, <laughs> when, you, like, when we get to Hollywood, uh, it's always you, the US. You, that's you the mean top. to say that the inherent
0: cinematic appeal of Woking has not made it through <laughs> unscathed into Steven yeah. Spielberg's vision, you astonish me.
1: Um, so if, if we move on to uh, 1953, and this is um, the first big War oh. of the Worlds film um, it's a cracker, isn't oh, it? Oh, it's a cracker, yeah. Um so this is sort of obviously the, the in the backdrop of not only a few years after the atomic bomb being dropped, so yeah. there's um there's themes in there about, you know, uh extremely powerful weapons and trying there's the sort of the past there's, there's a pastor in this um and he gets he gets in, uh heat raid when he tries to yeah. uh, reason with the Martians, but whilst um, doing a flawless Max von Sydow impression,
0: by the way, <laughs> I, was, I was watching that thinking, is that, is this the world's weirdest prequel to The Exorcist that I'm seeing? Because for a few of those shots, I was like, is is it, is it him? Because that's a that's a very strange career path to have taken. Yeah, this, from from this to The Exorcist to Game of Thrones, I think would be a, a fantastic life in cinema. But no, no, turned out, turned out it wasn't him, <laughs> alas.
1: Um, some of the ideas in this one um, aren't in the book, and but they sort of start filtering through to a lot of the other uh, versions later on. Um, especially this idea of the the Martians sort of sh- uh, machines have shield have like force fields or shields, which sort of explains why none of the conventional weapons work. So <laughs> it, it's it's quite interesting that the the book and as we'll hear the soundtrack, which is a bit more faithful to it, um, the the Martians don't have any sort of special um, protection. You know, the tripods do get blown up every now and then, whereas uh, they're they're literally invincible in most of the films for, for a large part of it.
0: Yeah. Actually, that's a really interesting shout, which I hadn't thought of. Um, But I wonder if, is that a reflection of the sort of advances in military technology between the sort of late 1800s and the sort of fifties and, and, Mm. you know, and so on afterwards. Um, Because the thing is, it's certainly very easy for me to misunderstand how much progress was made, since when Wells wrote the book, we are talking about, you know, a a place where you still had... Cavalry was still a part of how you did your thing on the battlefield. Yeah. Um, And, you know, fast forward through two world wars and the start of the Cold War, and everything's metal and far more precise and so on. So I wonder if it was more realistic in the late 1890s that, like the British Army's best gunners would basically be like, uh, well, I'll give it a shot, but, I mean, no, I've missed him. No, no, that's all I've got now. Sorry. No, no, just, you know, I missed. Never mind. He will trample me. Um, Because we talked a little bit, didn't we, about, you know, the the hilarious sight of three tripods standing around together in the middle of the, the otherwise beautiful bucolic English countryside just sort of having a conversation basically about what to do about one of their fallen comrades. Hmm. You know, apparently safe in the knowledge that that whoever was shooting at them was so cack-handed that they weren't going to hit them. Um, yeah,
1: wonder, well, that was that that fair that was, at the time. And it if it was, was,
0: how the hell did the British Empire happen?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that was uh, the 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 big difference that we that we get sort of when we get to this stage of the technology, the sort of military technology, is that. Those big sort of heavy weapons are much more manoeuvrable, aren't they? So I think what happened in the book is, yeah, this um, this gun emplacement takes down one of the tripods, and then the gun emplacement is destroyed, and then they can, yeah, the tripods can just stand around for a bit because there isn't another gun emplacement for a while, and there's just yeah. th- there's just not that ability to move quickly to move things up and and continue an attack. Whereas now, obviously, um, in more modern times and even in the fifties. Your big heavy weapons can move a lot more quickly, so they had to give the Martians an upgrade as well. <laughs> yeah,
0: I mean, you know, with the advent of the paved road and the, you know, the internal combustion engine and, you know, mechanized warfare and all the rest of it, and I think we find it easy to forget exactly how terrifying it was when the Nazis developed Blitzkrieg because it was like, oh shit, you can do all of this now, you can move this quickly. Yeah. Um, where people were used to moving far more slowly. Again, though, I will say, I don't think it bodes terribly well that Hul sets this basically at... I can't overstate how much the British Army is based in Aldershot, which is down the road from Woking. (laughs) Like, how much hardware they have around. My sister lives around there. And it is not in the slightest bit unusual to see tanks driving around. And um, it's really, really weird to me that he sets this story there, and then the sort of progress of the invasion depends upon it basically being, you know, effortless to wipe out all of the army where all of the army lives. So it's just a weird kind of place to set it. And like I say, <laughs> does raise questions for me about how on earth the British Empire happened.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, so the uh, the sort of Child episode of 1953 gets an upgrade as well. You don't have a battleship, but you have an atomic bomb <laughs> which is dropped on him and doesn't doesn't um, doesn't stop the martians. Um, the the actual sort of ending is 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 fairly is fairly uh, sort of faithful to the book. It's the sort of bacteria that kills the Martians again. There's sort of a a little sort of nod to a religious element in this one, where obviously the pastor gets killed at the start as he's sort of wandering towards them with his Bible, and at the end everyone sort of holed up in this church praying for a miracle and then like all the martians just die <laughs> and obviously it's because <laughs> of bacteria but everyone's like Way! <laughs> it worked <laughs>
0: <laughs> and there was much rejoicing <laughs> um, yeah yeah that's an interesting one isn't it and like a quite i know i i'm i'm just intrigued by to what extent that was kind of performative piety and to what extent that was kind of reflective of what people how people expected kind of prayer and religious practice to actually impact their lives. Mm. Cause certainly, if you ask me for my image of the 1950s in England, it wouldn't be <laughs> particularly sort of, you know, proactive miracles by prayer approach. But, um, uh, but it's really, really fascinating. Uh, mm. Really, really just, you know, interesting little sort of cultural nugget for me
1: yeah okay. Let's talk visuals and special effects um, <laughs> um <'cause, laughs> oh less because <laughs> this is the interesting thing about um when we talk about the two thousand and five film slightly later on um it's this is less so, but this is where the certainly the book and to a lesser extent the um the musical but that that has its own issues um is Especially that the books are a sort of much more successful medium in traveling over decades. Because, yeah. you know, obviously the writing styles change, but sort of your imagination can provide the special effects. Whereas you're limited to the technology of the time when uh, you're trying to do it on film. And apparently, I mean, this won an Oscar for... Um, I think it was for special effects, or certainly for did, sort seriously? of its, its visuals. did this win yeah. an Oscar for special let, Hang on, let me when just, did you say, what, 53? 1953, yeah. Um, like,
0: let me have a look. I can, oh. I can see that to a certain extent, though, because it's in colour, yeah. and, you know, there's some, there's some uh, presumably very impressive at the time puppetry, um, <laughs> <laughs> which, which, which I'm sure we'll
1: come to. Um, yeah, yeah, No, the, uh, best uh, Academy Award for Best Visual Effects. So yeah, it won the special effects Oscar. That's that's
0: um, incredible. Yeah. Like I, I forget. And I think, I mean, and this is absolutely, this is completely on me because I can watch films from the late nineties and look at the CGI and be like, Oh, that was shite. Hmm. But at the time it was all astonishing, you know? Yeah. Um, what, was, what was the best example of something I saw the other day that didn't quite stand up and I had to sort of remind myself that it was still a fairly impressive thing. Um, was it Lord of the Rings, I think? Like, the mm. first Lord of the Rings, by comparison with the second Lord of the Rings, is so kind of... They were working out all of the technology. And they were basically mm. doing all of it so they could work... They had an extra year to get Gollum right. Mm. And um, and it's palpable. And I, obviously, I mean, obviously, that is now a 17-year-old film. Holy shit. But I remember when it came out to... Um, when it came out of the cinema and being completely blown away by it. So Mm. I really must not be too sniffy about the fact that there are some fairly spectacularly sort of, uh, uh, cliched, uh, effects. In a film made in colour in 1953, like this was the state of the art.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, the, even, the real- even
0: though it now resembles a Doctor Who episode from 15 years later, you know, I think that's my thing with it, is that all yeah. of these techniques were so adaptable to TV that they became absolutely a staple of Doctor Who and The Twilight Zone and that sort of thing, that kind of cheap, pulpy TV, really not very many years later.
1: Yeah. They really do make the most of these sort of. The colour is <laughs> very, very. Very colourful. <laughs> like the, the, the ships are these. Um, the, the Martian sort of tripods are. More, they more. look more like ships with these big they sort do, of green do. and red lights on them. Apparently, the uh, it, there's a bit in the film where they say that there are tripod legs you just can't see them they're like invisible legs (laughs) I assume that's because the special (laughs) effects department couldn't cope with them but um but yeah so they look more like ships don't
0: yeah well and they didn't have and I I I dig this legs would be way harder to to um ironically way harder to uh animate Mm. you know than I guess kind of flying things across on strings Mm. you know it makes a lot more sense but it is kind of weird that they've they've taken so many of the things about what the spaceships are supposed to look like from the book but then gone, but not the legs, yeah? Everybody's alright with no legs? Yeah, definitely.
1: <laughs> yeah, we can't do the legs. It's too hard. We'll just say they're invisible. Um, the-
0: <laughs> <laughs> they were on surprisingly pliable see-through
1: stalks. That's what it was. <laughs> the um, the heat rays quite quite hilarious as well in that. It's sort of <laughs> when you watch it, it's less that things get sort of obliterated in heat and more they kind of get photoshopped out of existence. <laughs> 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 Which is good.
0: good. Well, it's because, I mean, like, and honestly, I think if you put a gun to my head and told me to come up with a better way of making it look like things had disappeared... I really wouldn't know how to do it than, you know, just keeping the camera in the same place and then taking everybody out and, you know, putting the shots side by side, mm. um, uh, which is what they do. So it looks like everybody's been kind of burned away. But I remember that being very, very, very characteristic of the, like I say, of sort of, you know, sci-fi TV in the 60s that I've seen. Mm. You know, that kind of, like, people people who are burned up by a, a, a burning ray or whatever it may be, you know, mm. magically become brightly coloured, perfect outlines yeah. of themselves, and then flash and disappear. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I wonder if, if they were the first to do this, then they deserve all the plaudits that they
1: get. Yeah. And um, I'll, I'll put a will put up a couple of videos on <clears throat> on Twitter at Shark Liver Oil, uh, which so you can you can watch a little bit of this for yourself if you if you want to. Um, there's a battle scene, and also <laughs> there's an amazing sort of minute-long scene where um, the Martians, like the actual Martian arrives in the house and you see what the Martian looks like and it basically looks like a E.T. with three multicoloured eyes and there's just this bit where this little hand like grabs the shoulder of this woman and she screams and, oh my goodness, I, I, I laughed out loud when I saw it. It's so good. I,
0: I agree. Uh, it, it is it's up there with some of the greatest scenes in cinema, for me. Um, just just for the sheer, like, you can feel it being like, okay, he really needs to freak her out. Uh, by the way, we need to note that this woman in this female character in the film who, I mean, at least they put a female character in the friggin' film, because there definitely isn't one in the book. Um, but uh, her role is to get freaked out and scream at things. And, and she does it like a pro. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> but um her 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 reaction to getting a hand put on her shoulder there you know which is just palpably made out of a broom handle and some brown spray paint and a rubber glove um you know she sells it like an absolute professional um and and, you know kudos to her for doing the very most with the very least characterization available
1: I love like, I sort of the idea that the Martian actually does that. That like he wanders up to it and goes, uh, hello. <laughs> tap yeah. on the shoulder. <laughs> yeah, like,
0: like, the Martians at <laughs> this point really have not shown themselves to be tap on the shoulder type <laughs> beings. You know, that, yeah. uh, hello, excuse me. Uh, I'm terribly sorry, excuse me. Uh, yes, we're here from Mars. Uh, <laughs> taking a wrong wrong turn? Uh, would, would you, would you, could you be so kind as to uh, bring out everybody so that we can eat them? We're terribly peckish. Thank, thank you very much. It's very lovely of you. You know, it's not that. And then they make this kind of mournful-looking E.T. thing whose face seems to have been inspired. By the way, they've got rid of the 16 tentacles thing, and I think we can all say we're very sad about that, and the massive ear on the back of the head thing. And again, (laughs) I would have liked to have seen that. And instead, they've replaced it with... I'm pretty sure what happened was the special effects director or coordinator or whatever looked... Like, was trying to come up with a design for this, and then just looked at one of the... um, one of the old TV cameras, and which, which used to have like a red filter and a blue filter and a green filter on the old analogue TV cameras, and just went, oh, that'll do. Yeah, we'll have that. That's, <laughs> I'm now terrified of, of TV cameras, so there we go. That's what an alien looks like. <laughs> and I feel like you could have done more with it, you know? Like, if yeah. you're going to have a scene where there's an alien in the room with you, you got to have something other than, you know, really poorly put together marigold on a stick type special <laughs> effects.
1: Yeah, I don't think either of the films really got The Martians right, but we'll, um, we'll talk about the, the second one later on. But yeah, this multicoloured sort of face is a bit strange. And it also, rather pathetically, um, the, the hero just defeats it by, he shines a light in its face. It goes, <laughs>
0: ah!
1: <laughs> You see its little hands go up in front He's, of it. It's and just it all, very
0: nearly runs away doing the actual <laughs> E.T. wavy arms above the head thing. Like If Steven Spielberg didn't watch this when preparing for, for E.T., it's one of the most astonishing bits of parallel inspiration I've ever seen. Um, it's either that or Dr. Zoidberg from uh, from Futurama. You just almost hear this thing going, Woo! <laughs> um,
1: right, let's move about. forward another couple of decades. Um, and now we come to what was my first introduction to War of the Worlds. Um, the the prog rock concept album that is Jeff Wayne's 1978 War of the Worlds. Dave, classic. I, I am on tender hooks to hear your thoughts on this. <laughs> um,
0: I'll tell you what it did, Matt. It reminded me of what a bright new frontier the 1970s must have been in like certain art forms because the thing it reminded me of the most don't get angry about this but the thing it reminded me of the most was like jesus christ superstar and those in like godspell and those kind of like terribly well-developed 1970s rock operas <laughs> um which basically proceeded from the sort of As far as I can tell, the fond belief on the part of musicians of that generation that they were the first people to have ever worked out what music was really for.
2: Hmm.
0: And like, and like kind of, but yeah, but you see, if we put vocals over the top of the orchestral bit, we'll blow everybody's minds, man. And um, my first response to that, because that to me is incredibly cheesy. That to me is like, because that was what was established when I was learning about music in the 80s and the 90s. You're like kind of, well, yeah. But, Mm. you know, can we do something a bit more interesting with it? But really fascinating parallel with the original War of the Worlds, which had to do the same with. Because you've got to wind your brain back and remember that nobody had done this kind of thing before. You know, Mm. nobody had made this kind of massive-scale rock opera before. And that definitely means that there are bits of it which are a little bit kind of janky, a little bit (laughs) kind of sharp-elbowed. But... But for, you know, for saying you were, really did believe that you were working with an absolute open blank canvas, it's actually really, really fascinating. I I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot. It's I mean, funny because it's it, more than others, but I did enjoy it, it a lot.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. Um, yeah, um, I really actually quite enjoyed seeing Jesus Christ Superstar as well. So this just be really my bag. <laughs> this, like prog rock opera. But, stuff. So the seeds were planted, <laughs> Matt,
0: because when you saying that your dad basically would like sit you and your brother down and put this on. And just yeah. say, listen to this. It's amazing.
1: Yeah, when I was like, yeah, really... I, I, we we thought... Um, I thought it was when I was around sort of 10, and then I mentioned this to my dad a couple of weeks ago, and he was like, no, no, you were younger than that. You were like five or something. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I've been very Brilliant. much indoctrinated in this from a very young age. Um, so, yeah, at an age where you're quite receptive to stuff, and I was like, oh, my goodness it feels like it's <laughs> happening all around me um yeah so
0: that, yeah. yeah i mean there's an age for experiencing both the wonder and the terror of you know truly ground groundbreaking creative work but yeah. um so what did you think about it coming back to it then because i mean i presumably you hadn't listened to this for a while until mm. we till we did this what was your take on it as an adult
1: it's, it's hard for me because it's kind of a it's kind of a bit of a massive nostalgia trip but i'm listening to it anyway because i'm sort of remembering it's like any sort of thing that you really loved when you were a child you as soon as especially with music because it's it's the one of the most evocative ways of remembering stuff it um yeah it it really brings back those feelings that i felt when i when i first heard it when i was little so i really really enjoyed it um i mean yeah you can sort of see you know 30 40 years of musical progress means that it's it it, it isn't sort of the (laughs) perfect example of what this type of thing would be now but i think it's still i think if you are going to say you know like you said if you if you take the prog rock concept album with all its faults as a whole then it's still one of the best examples of that i mean some of the like the opening sort of number with that bum 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 thing is is quite yeah, yeah. quite famous now, isn't it? It's probably as much associated yeah. with War of the Worlds as, as even the, the the book is these days. Um, and I, yeah. I think I would say I think the first half is stronger than the second. I don't know what you think. I,
0: I would ag- I would agree with that, and I don't think it's a coincidence that the first half is largely dialogue free, and the second half is the bit where he starts trying to write characters because <laughs> it can I, can I tell you it doesn't work the whole <laughs> depiction of the the vickers the, the curates breakdown is just the most like oh god did nobody teach you about dialogue and characterization and sort of you know making it in any sense realistic or in any mm. sense you know making me feel that character and I'm not really sure what character you could write that would make sense of you know the massive absurd bombast of the prog rock album mm. but i i really for me the wheels came off when when you have this whole thing where he chooses to make the primary dialogue piece about a guy just losing his bananas mm. and but then putting that over a kind of walking line and some synths <laughs> and it was like i really okay
1: it is funny because the the characters that do exist in it do sort of just come and go very quickly, don't they? You have sort of a few minutes to get to know them and then they're gone. I mean, um, there aren't many anyway, but you basically just with the... I suppose it's similar to the book. you basically with the narrator all the way through and then a couple of other um, fairly sort of, uh, not particularly carefully drawn characters come and disappear relatively quickly. One of the big differences, of course, is that they roll the two brothers into one so the narrator goes to London and then goes to a yeah. ship and then leaves. Whereas, obviously, you have the the two in the book, which means he's got this... Um, like I said, when we were doing the, the first part of the book, it means he's got this girlfriend that he's got to go and find in London, where, which obviously doesn't happen in the books. Um, yeah. I, I think part of that is just to, for an excuse to get this... Song in, which is called Forever Autumn, which is halfway through. And yeah. um, apparently this is a song that was just, it's just a song that was written and then was sort of shoehorned into the, into the whole thing. And it does stand out as a sort of, it yeah. feels like there's just a, there's this whole sort of soundscape, uh, prog rock opera going on. And then there's just yeah. a song in the middle of it as well.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's, and actually that's a really interesting thing of how musicals used to be written because I I might even have talked about this on the podcast before, I think. Um, uh, if you've ever seen My Fair Lady, which is very much not a prog rock, uh, <laughs> prog rock uh, light opera, although I'll tell you, I would pay money to see My Fair Lady done in the style of Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds. Hmm. But um, it's got a very, very famous song um, uh, on the street where you live. And actually, um, I'm Getting Married in the Morning. It's got these two amazing songs that are in it and if you're not careful when you stage it they really do feel like they've been plonked in from on high because they absolutely were because what happened was somebody wrote these two fantastic songs and then george bernard shaw wrote this fantastic play pygmalion and they were like right oh, mash them up together I'll write a plot around them you know we've got three masterpieces here surely we can get a musical out of it and that is absolutely the case hmm. um and it kind of I I sort of love because I'm a big fan of musical theatre I sort of love that this this art form that I like is so bought into its own power to like do the big cheesy swell of strings that it can get away with literally showing you the strings showing Mm. you how everything has been brought together and the joining points and all the rest of it um and I, I definitely felt that around Forever Autumn, where I was like, "Oh, I see. so what happened, Jeff?" Was you wrote an absolute showstopper, and then you were like, "I'll get paid more for this if I also write a, a show for it to go in." <laughs> what have I got here? What have I got here? Oh, brilliant! Yeah, fantastic. War of the Worlds. Let's do it. Go get the synths out. Let's fly.
1: <laughs> now, one of the great things about it that I, um, I will highlight. Is the casting of Richard Burton as the narrator is brilliant, and it's from the very beginning when he goes, "No one would have believed." He's thinking, "Oh, here we go. This is great." Because because he he's sort of perfect because he's he's stoic to the point of disinterested in some places. <laughs> That's absolutely which, what it is. Which is, but but that but I thought that really does mirror what the 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 narrator is like in the book as well he's like he, yeah. i thought which is interesting when we compare it to the the redoing of it in in um sort of 2010 but uh but yeah the richard Burton the, the voice as well it's just i could listen to him read the phone book quite easily so i mean that's true
0: and that is indeed uh very much richard burton's entire career is that he had the voice um i th- I thought you were right. I thought it was a very good expression of the tone of the book, but it really, for me, it just sat incredibly ill at ease with the just this sort of nineteen seventies soaked vibe of <clears> the of the music. Because you know it's got like because it, and it's encapsulating those as you say the first few bars are really interesting. You know where it's like you know you get the kind of. Um, Big orchestral, dramatic, operatic kind of dun 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 And you're like, That is a pretty good use of three notes right there. That's brilliant. Got the strings, everything's crashing in, and then and Richard Burton's talking and it's great. And then it's sort of and then it's as if Jeff Wayne was like, and well and, 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 and so I've got the best of the previous eras of music, I've got the orchestral, I've got the dramatic reading, I've got the what we need now. Is slightly squelchy synth bass. And it's just like it's the most it sounds like the theme tune to Yes Prime Minister. And it's just like, it's it's such a weird mashup. And it's over that 1970s vibe that Richard Burton's voice just starts to feel a little bit weird to me. But I mean <laughs> I got used to it. But I thought it was yeah. a great example of this collision between the classical and the modern where it didn't really work for me
1: mm and um and he, yeah, so you've got him all the way through it, and uh doing his doing his thing the <laughs> i think my my favorite uh i think my favorite bit of it is probably the sort of the second and third track where the sort of the the cylinder lands and then there's then you've got this sort of Driving like industrially baseline, going round and round and round. Then other bits are being added to it, and you can hear the unscrewing of the cap uh, of the of the sort of cylinder. I think this is where I think it's at its strongest because it does. I thought it it does really give you that sense of what's what's going on. You got the sort of uh, weird bits and the progressy bits, and then there's sort of the bringing the marching when the uh, when the military show up to put the cordon in, in place i just think it that i think the bit where the book is the strongest is when it's building tension um okay. as the sort of cylinder lands and you're not sure what ha- what's going to happen and yeah. i just thought that was mirrored quite well in the in the actual in the actual music um, very much the other bit i am um, i particularly like is the <laughs> and we mentioned this uh during the the book version but the the thunder child sort of sort of end of the first act which is the most outrageous sort of rock opera um number in the whole thing but, uh, it is, it? but yeah I, I i i still i still really enjoy listening to that it was sort of it was almost like a guilty pleasure, but oh right, yeah, <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. But because it is that, it really works. Because I agree, like it is the most preposterous kind of wah wah guitar. I've got my star shaped sunglasses out, nineteen seventies. You know, you, you you know, taste my Robert my Robert Plant jumpsuit type thing, <laughs> but but it works because it's. I know, but it's because that's when it comes closest to the kind of brilliance of the other similarly preposterous, overblown, uh, maybe not rock opera, but I'm thinking of the sort of prog concept album, uh, you know, thing from the 70s. Um, And like the whole, uh, just the bombast of those albums um, is really, really, really great. And I, I, I... I I, thought, I knew I was going to like it the moment you quoted the lyrics to me from that particular song, the <laughs> yeah. song. but he's oh he's great and it, because it's in a sense it's not very orchestral, mm.
1: you know, and because of that that is that to me is why it works. Mm. The the narration in that is, is is good as well. In that I was really surprised that when we read the book that this this line was included in it where. Um, I thought this would have, lifted, would have been lifted straight out of the book, but where they sort of this, this, the, the, the sort of the battleships waiting across, like in the middle of the harbour, if you like, and then it, it's just described as everyone's like wondering what's going to happen, and then it just sort of moves slowly towards land, so away from the the Martians, and then yeah. it says with a turn and a like, I think there's a scream of engines or roar of engines and whoosh of spray, it speeds towards the Martians, and I could just sort of. I can always really imagine that, but you see this thing silently moving away and then it turns and then you just hear this like, it sort of sets off, almost like a a roar in the same way that the Martians do their own thing. And it's like, just very emotive. And I was quite surprised that it wasn't just lifted straight out of the book.
0: Yeah, very interesting, isn't it, that he really, like, he's, I mean, he's got some instincts, this Jeff Wayne fella, you know, future in this business, <laughs> where he really recognises where the dramatic high point is and just absolutely <laughs> digs into it
1: yeah although I do like in the book how they just they run the ship heading towards the Martians on the little steamer, and then it just the whole the whole sort of steamer just rocks to one side as this as this thing just tears straight past them towards it this sort of as like you said in in the a couple of episodes ago the sort of h m s r fuck it it just goes for it <laughs> 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 Again, uh, yeah.
0: you know, because I think that was your fa- one of your favorite bits and certainly one of my favorite bits as well is like yep, yep, yep,
1: yep. The um as I said, the second half of the uh of it I I think is I, I still enjoy, but um you know, if I'm if I'm up against it for time, I'll probably listen to the first half and sort of skip my way through the second. Um I mean, there's the, bit, there's the Artilleryman song, which I think is good, but maybe a couple of minutes too long. I think it's a good sort of 12 <laughs> minutes long.
0: <laughs> and that right there is the is where, like, you know, my tolerance for this sort of format really snaps. Is where I'm like, <laughs> it seemed to be an era where, and this, mind you, this is an era where recording more music was very expensive, because it was all physical media, and mm. you were going to have to go to two discs or whatever you know double gatefold sleeve and the rest of it but Mm. people still did it people still recorded it like you know 12 minute long tracks weren't no thing and Mm. i'm sitting here listening to it going this is definitely something this is a lot more thing than i need right now this definitely ain't no (laughs) ain't no thing
2: it just
1: went on for a fucking age yeah also maybe again maybe
0: i'm being an idiot maybe i need to go back and actually give it time that it deserves but yeah it went on
1: yeah same Probably same with the pasta song probably again i think maybe a verse and chorus too long but you know it is it, it is it is what it is it's setting out to be i don't know it just it feels like the second half is like they, they had about half a second half and then extended it do you know what i mean <laughs> but um it's it's still yeah. i'd say it's still well well worth a listen um Especially the Richard Burton um, narration gives you that sort of. It does he does really feel like the narrator? I do think um, the the casting, most of the casting in this um, in this version is really good. I think the, the pastor, yeah, is a bit of a strange, and his wife. I'm not quite. Is, is, is that is it's a bit of a strange coupling, but you know it yeah. it's it's funny music can be very personal can't it so i'm sure some people listening are like oh, that's my fa- that's my favorite bit what are you what are you talking about which is which is fine but it's it's uh it's well worth a listen um yeah yeah absolutely and yeah. uh if you want to have the full matthew matthew aged um Matthew age five experience, then what you need to do <laughs> is get yourself a big massive pair of headphones, preferably sort of 70s, eight, early 80s headphones. But if you can't find them, just have some big headphones. Stick them on. Switch all the lights off, and then just play it. <laughs> That's Let basically it how I experienced
0: I it mean, when I was little. <laughs> imagine. I really. Do. The more you talk about that, the more I think that is the that is just the flipping best thing. Like I need to. I've got a little girl far younger than that, but I need to work out some way of um, uh, of of like i don't know what the what the parallel experience would be but just like giving her a chance to engage that deeply with a piece of music it's just great mm-hmm.
1: did you hear any of the 2010 the new generation <laughs> um, I'm, I Jeff must Wayman. confess
0: I did not, because <laughs> of my extreme intolerance for anything claiming to be the new generation of anything. I think if you have to put that in the title, then what you're really saying is, this isn't new enough to stand on its own two feet, so we're going to grandfather in a lot of the nostalgia crowd,
1: and that's the way we're
0: going to make some money. Um, but Which is a completely unformed prejudice, obviously, because I didn't
1: actually listen to it. Any good? It's funny, because it, it's always a double-edged sword, that. Because on the one hand, yeah, you're using the success of a very popular thing of you know, a few decades ago, to sell Mm -hmm. the next one. But it also means it gets a lot of heat um, and a lot of criticism um, from fans of the original, basically because it isn't the original. You know, like, a lot of people leave reviews of it saying, oh, it's not as good as this, this, and this, because the original is... And, uh, 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 And while I agree with some of that, I think some of it is also just people saying it isn't exactly the same as the original. But if it was, I mean, what were the point of... I mean, it feels like you're more yeah. complaining about its existence rather than how good it is. Um, yeah, yeah, But, true. I, I mean, the the narrator, obviously because that is sort of one of the main things in the original, they sort of swing for the fences and get Liam Neeson instead, um, <laughs> which he's, he's great, but he's actually yeah. um, almost too... I, I found him, something was a bit strange about it, he really sells the emotion a lot more but I, oh, I, I but really? I kind of yeah. So the sort of stuff where he, yeah, everything that happens, he he feels like he reacts a bit more to it than Richard Burton does. But yeah, e- even though that it might be actually better acting, um, yeah. it, it it feels less like the like less true to the narrator in the book, which was quite quite weird. Um, they had they have yeah. Rick, Ricky Wilson from Kaiser Chiefs doing the artilleryman. Do they really? Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. Which is which is I'm actually really disquiet now. <laughs> <laughs> which is actually good for these for the sing for the for these big musical number. I think he sings it better. Um, yeah. but I don't think he's, he's he's not much of an actor i don't think that's, I think that's fair to say um so i think one of the things about david essex in the original um is he does sell he does he does sort of he does sell that like innocent like uh artilleryman inexperienced guy quite well he sounds like he's he sounds like he's constantly shitting his pants and the whole sort of thing whereas the sort of ricky wilson character is more um I don't know. He, he, he sounds like he's just sort of gone a bit mad and isn't taking any of it particularly seriously. Um I mean that's not exactly off brand for Ricky Wilson or the Kaiser Chiefs. <laughs> is it? No, no. So uh so yeah, no it's it's I'd say it's, it's worth it's worth a listen. The, the actual music obviously because you he've had 40 years of studio development. I'd say that's probably better. Um got the controversial opinion i'm sure that people who love the original would would disagree but um yeah i mean things like it, <laughs> i think some of the things that you have a problem with in terms of the the, the way the music is put together you may prefer the 2010 version because it's it's done with a bit more sort of modern finesse to it although there's a, there's, yeah. there's definitely a um with the the main theme like bam 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 thing there's a yeah. a, f- a sort of pendulum feel to it, sort of propane nightmares, sort of. Uh, oh, like, really? Yeah, oh, you know, you know, that kind of like, I don't know, I don't know how to describe it, but like almost like over-modding synth. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of that in it. Um, well, th-
0: wow, that's a that's a direction to take it. Yeah. Does, does somebody also bellow bass in the place London about two thirds of the way through the <laughs> opening track? <laughs>
1: Unfortunately, not. No, unless I've got the version where oh, they didn't put it in. you disappointed. That's what
0: I want, Matt. I want them to go all out on that hitherto unhinted musical direction and just make a completely dubstep version of yeah. the War of the Worlds. Jeff Wayne's musical version of the War of the Worlds. Brap brap. That would be amazing. Like I'd do that all day long.
1: Yeah, but yeah, give it a go. Oh, there's um, yeah, there's some of the uh, like bits that they weave a bit more sort of sound effects stuff in as well so there's a bit where in the the sort of do you know when after the cylinder lands and the sort of mm. the night passes it, I think the next bit starts with you can hear like a, like a bit a little bit of owl noise mm. in the background and like the sound of like guns crashing in the distance and then the sort of that bass line comes in that do yeah. and then it so that, so that yeah. moves you into the sort of moves you into it a bit more <laughs> mm-hmm. and they drop some of the some of the elements of the 1970s version, which do jar a bit now, there's a bit in that, that sort of, I think that song again, where in the 70s version, there's a... which sounds a bit like a porn guitar. Uh, it is. But, but at I the think time that's the thing like, that makes uh, it,
0: that like super glues it to the mid-70s, isn't it? Yeah. And that, that's what I mean about the... Um, uh, uh, I mean, because you're right, because we call that, and that is, that is now the phrase for that, porn guitar. But... Actually, that was used almost everywhere. That was used in, um, uh, like I say, in uh, Yes Prime Minister, which is the most... It's a great show, but it's absolutely not trying to be in any sense, like, you know, youthful or groundbreaking or shocking or anything. But still, the theme tune has this kind of... guitar behind it. Because that's just... Everybody seemed to add that to shit in the 70s. The same way the uh, Blackout of the Second theme tune has this preposterous noodling Steve Vai-style guitar solo over the end of it. You know, for verisimilitude with (laughs) the 1500s. Um... (laughs) And it's a really, really funny thing where you can... It, it's one of those sounds that so dramatically dates a piece of music, for me. Yeah. Really, really makes it feel like it was... I'm like, I can nail that down to a four-year period of production norms. <laughs> and it was kind of sad for me.
1: <laughs> yeah, so um, I, I would... I, it's, it's hard for me. I was trying to think, if I was to recommend listening to this to someone now, which version would I tell them to listen to? Because... I worry that, and I think some of those worries from your reaction are, 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 are sort of are, are valid here, that sort of my nostalgia clouds some of my judgment with the 70s version. So maybe the more modern version doesn't fall into the traps of like it feeling quite as dated. In the same way that the 1950s version of the film looks really dated now. Um, yeah, that's true. So you might sort of have more time for the 2010 version but i'd say i still say if you're going to listen to it the first time go for the 70s version listen to be, the original be, yeah yeah and, be prepared and, for it to be a bit cheesy but yeah, you'll, <laughs> you'll probably find a lot to love about it
0: but i feel and again i think that the comparison is both with it's with those sort of other 70s rock operas jesus christ superstar and so on hmm. and um and with the original book in different ways because you know like if you try and I feel like listening to this outside a 1970s context is just not listening to it. Like it what it was and remains an incredibly cheesy piece of 1970s rock synth opera magnificence. Like <laughs> trying to try like you're not going to take it anywhere if you strip it back to being a really nice kind of, you know, loop and acoustic guitar-based thing from, you know, late 2010. That's just not the way to go with this. (laughs) It is supposed to be ridiculous. Um, And in much the same way, you know, um, I find it really interesting that, that again, this musical version, like the 50s version and the book, you go back and they are so dated in terms of format, Hmm. um, but so powerful in terms of concept that they still, they kind of, they don't need to look cool in order to be effective. Mm. Um, it's kind of a remarkable thing. I mean, I don't think it's because of anything particularly embedded in the story. I just think it's completely by chance that this story happens to have inspired people at particular moments in the, develop of the development of a particular sort of art form or format that mm. has meant that we have these three great examples of like a form basically, which kind of look awful but only because they inspired so much after them and Mm. you know inspired an art form that was then taken on further you know special effects or the music rock opera thing or or you know the sci-fi novel um kind of kind of amazing you know like i don't really know what the odds would be of that
1: Mm. there was a stage version of this which was done um not so long ago and uh it was maybe sort of maybe sort of early 2000s i think um, let, yeah. me just, let me just let me just get it right may as well war of the worlds um, and that had a um, that had a giant tripod like fighting machine on the stage which is kind of cool okay. <laughs> okay that is
0: very cool but I feel like now is the, the the right moment for me to mention a problem that I've been having throughout the entire recording of this hmm. um, which is and I acknowledge up front that this is a really weird thing. Right. But are you familiar with the film, uh, Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me? <laughs> uh, yeah, kind of. Right. So it's the one where Mini Me gets, gets introduced, you know, Dr. Evil and then his 18th scale clone. Yeah. And, um,. Uh, there's this sort of running gag through that and and the second film about the fact that Minimi basically has this enormous schlong. Like he's just like it's 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 not in proportion, it's huge. And he is referred to by several characters as a tripod <laughs> And Honestly, if you'd have asked me before we started recording this and reading this book, whether the association in my head of the word tripod was anything other than just, you know, something with three legs or indeed a camera, like I work with cameras, you know, you kind of expect it to be that. But somehow in my head, every single time you say the word tripod, I'm just somehow imagining sort of that like mini me making a or somebody making a joke about how massive <laughs> mini me's dick is, and it's just it's really <laughs> surreal now that you say. So in the stage show, they had a tripod right there on stage. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, 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 that's puppetry of the penis, that's what you're thinking <laughs> of there.
1: Um.
0: Oh, oh, and we talk, honestly, we talk about the state of the art, map the development of art form from one era to another, and I look back on the kind of wicker-whacker porn guitar thing, and I remember that, you know, I came of age in the era of the puppetry of the penis. I think I probably probably might need to uh, go and think about think
1: about my life. <laughs> well, for the remainder of um, our short time talking about War of the Worlds, I'll try and refer to that as the fighting machines rather than the tripods. <laughs> um, yeah, but yeah, so so yeah, they had a, a, one of these giant uh, flying machines on stage. There's a. <laughs> You can you can get this on again. Um, you can find videos of this on YouTube. The stage version. There's a very strange sort of Richard Burton head that keeps appearing, which is almost nightmarish, like it, unintentionally nightmarish. Um, what, sorry, they have a a head like a to, model Dave, of just, Richard just, Burton's head. Just go on Google now and type in um, War of the Worlds stage version, and just, right. just see like which which picture comes up of it. Because um, I think As that will hear, that will give tappy
0: you tippy tappy of the keys. Uh, Images Wow I mean that's That's (laughs) legit But all I've got is tripods at the moment Not the tripods I was thinking of Holy shit That's Yeah no that's that's Richard Burton's head. <laughs> why is it Richard Burton's head, Matt? Yeah,
1: why, yeah. why does Richard Burton's head need to be on stage? I don't know, but he appears on stage as a giant floating head. But I mean, it, well, they,
0: but he also like <laughs> really badly as well. Like he's, he's, he looks like an extra from Microsoft and Carter. Like he's you know from the sort of game that you got on four different CDs back in the late nineties, which actually War of the Worlds was also adapted to. Jeff, yeah. Jeff Wayne's musical version of the War of the Worlds actually did become such a game. <laughs> And I wasn't really expecting them to have just screen grabbed the CD-ROM low-res <laughs> quality graphics
1: and put them on the West End stage. I'm surprised. Yeah, yeah. So, so, <laughs> so there's that. But the, the actual the actual fighting machine does look really, really impressive. Um, you can see, uh, and you can see some some of that play on, on YouTube as well. Um, but it's, it's basically just a musical, just live with a massive yeah. fighting machine. Yeah. Okay. I think that's as a, that rounds off the the musical element of it, which leaves us with the most modern retelling, I think. I and mean, we have not played any um, any specific War of the Worlds video games. I don't know if you have. I know there's been a couple that have been no, made, and, and they were they were all almost all of them,
0: weren't they, based on the because there were two different video games that they made out of the um, out of the stage version, the musical version, hmm. um, but yeah I haven't played any of them. I haven't played any of the spin offs from the movie either i think i yeah I,
1: I resisted yeah yeah none of them have um have ever sort of made it as sort of a big you know game you must play have they they've never um they've never become a a celebrated version of the genre. Um, obviously, there's plenty of uh, influence on other films and games, which are so, so numerous that if we were to, to get into it, we'd never, we'd never finish the podcast. Um, but the only other specific version of War of the Worlds that I wanted to talk about was the most modern film, Steven Spielberg of, you know, my favorite ever film, Jurassic Park fame um <laughs> and various other, some of the some he did some of the stuff as well but jurassic park was obviously the big one <laughs> um yeah he yeah. Did, he had a crack at it 2005 with a uh, tom cruise in it but you basically take war of the worlds um add a a large sprinkling of the shawshank redemption and tom cruise <laughs> <laughs> and you Why have the 2005 mean- film
0: but by that, do you mean it's got Tim Robbins in it? Is there any other similarity between the 2005 War of the Worlds and the Shawshank Redemption?
1: Yeah, it begins and ends with Morgan Freeman voiceover. How about that?
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Although, although basically everything in my life does, you know. And, and you know, March of the Penguins does for a start that's not, that's not, I'm not saying everything in my life is much of the penguins I'm just saying you know I like to imagine Morgan Freeman narrating things you can't,
1: <laughs> you can't change me um, <laughs> yeah 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 it's um yeah it's just Morgan Freeman going I remember the time I first saw the Martians <laughs> No, seriously. Like so
0: I mean and this is where I confess I've barely seen this film. (laughs) Like so you're you're reminding me of shit that I think I saw it once, very sleepy, in two thousand and seven, which was a while ago. (laughs) So I I like you're you're genuine oh man, I I've completely forgotten that.
1: Uh, yeah, no, so, so it's Morgan Freeman doing the obviously the quote no one would have believed, but the this quote is I mean, the, it's one of the most famous first lines, I think, and you can tell that this is a such a key part of War of the Worlds because every time a, a version is done, it always starts with the first line. Um, yeah. And they always try and pick a big hitter to to deliver it. So you know, yeah, Richard yeah. Burton, Liam Neeson. For this film, Morgan Freeman steps up to do oh, it. Oh man!
0: I mean, there's a battle royale that right there, <laughs> like a a, a a a thespian off between Richard Burton, Morgan Freeman, and um, and Liam Neeson. Yeah, brilliant,
1: <laughs> absolutely brilliant. Um, so. This is this film is. I mean, it sets out to sort of be a, a rough retelling of it, with nods to previous films as well as the books. Um, obviously, set in modern America, uh, modern-ish, two thousand and five. They <laughs> still have camcorders, but it's pretty much modern. Um, yeah. he, Tom Cruise is a single dad in New York, working on this dockyard. You think it's the first scene? Is it is in this massive machine? Um, moving, moving stuff Aye. around. Hey, Aye. Did you get it? Do you get the parallels, though, Matt? You see yeah. there,
0: because you see. Do you know what? Don't you, you'll you'll get there. You'll get. Don't worry about it. It's, <laughs> it's, it's subtle, but uh, but I'm sure it'll hit you eventually.
1: <laughs> yeah, he's got this dickhead teen son. Of course, he's got. Of course, he's he got. Has. <laughs> he's got a daughter who like a little a little girl who's you know she's kind of cute and also kind of looks a bit like an alien, which I think I can say now because the actress has grown up. Um, <laughs> 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 It'd be a bit harsh if she was still a kid. It, um, I agree with that. Yes. The uh, yeah, he's got an ex-wife who's, who still kind of loves him and sort of disappears at the start and then comes comes back at the end for the for the happy ending. Um, there's a, Do we there's think a... this is a
0: better approach, by the way, than than having having somebody who's you know designated screamer along the whole trip, as in the 1953 <laughs> version?
1: Yeah, yeah, I suppose so. Or designated current wife who just sort of appears at the very end um in the in the actual in the actual book yeah the <laughs> the the actual the, the weird thing about this one is the fighting machines are buried underground already yeah and what happens is there's lightning storms and the sort of the martians arrive in the lightning and then the, the sort of the machines burst out of the ground, which is an interesting way of doing it. But you do lose that. I think one of the best parts, as I've said before, about the book and the ret- some of the retellings is the tension you get between the landing of the Martians and them attacking everybody. Yeah, there is always this build-up where you know the, the cylinders unscrewing, that people are approaching it, mesmerised by it, and all this, and none of that. You, you don't get any of that, so. It doesn't capture that sense of the the original in it.
0: Very much. And I also think the they arrive by lightning thing is a little bit weird as an execution piece. Are they teleporting? Mm. Like they just, it just gets really rainy, and then they decide, ah, the rainstorm we've been waiting for all this time, <laughs> you know, to, to let these things out of storage where we yeah. kept them on Earth because of reasons, and we put them there even though we would have all caught a cold <laughs> by doing it. And... Yeah, not not impressed. If the
1: truth is told. <laughs> um, the the heat ray they do have the heat ray, but it's not sort of like a flamethrower sort of thing. It it just basically evaporates people, and but it doesn't evaporate the clothes. I don't think. So it's a proper sort of PG thirteen heat ray. Um, Again, I was going to say that, <laughs> isn't it? You can almost hear the concept
0: meeting, can't you? Everybody sitting down, going. Alright, I mean, so it's pretty bleak stuff, this You know, we're definitely going to lose the train Ploughing into the crowd full of people, yeah? Is that right, <laughs> Steve? Yeah, yeah, damn right Okay, alright, it needs to be nice for the kids So we'll put kid in there Um, how can we get them all to die Without it being, in any sense, disturbing? <laughs> magic Sleepy Bullets? Oh, we do Magic Sleepy Bullets every time Magic Sleepy Bullets is how anybody wins In any sort of Batman film Yeah, alright, fine, okay, um Er, uh, er uh, magic teleportation leave your clothes behind machine great great we don't go with them do we we're not going to end up with a load of naked people in some scene somewhere no 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 just you know lose the clothes behind freaky but not bloody great cracking right moving on who's doing the music
1: yeah it's like like the 50s version these tripods have a force field shield we find out about that from this journalist who appears who, she's not, she may as well be called Jane Exposition, she just sort of (laughs) turns up, drops a load of exposition and then leaves. Um, I got got
0: stuff you need to know and I got a five minute scene in which to
1: tell it to you. (laughs) Um, At at some point during the film his dickhead son wants to sort of join the army Um, not not sort of join up with the army and train, just sort of jump on a jeep with them and just go... (laughs)
0: Like, woo, woo. this is what being in the army is right yeah this is the whole thing yeah woo.
1: <laughs> he does that um a bit later on in the film he actually runs up to there's basically a battle between the u.s military and the um and the tripods it sort of takes the place of the thunder child thing because so, they're doing it to sort of to let the refugees escape um and he runs up just sort of i don't know i don't know if he says i've got it he really he, he's basically super curious he's like dad I've got to go and see and he runs off and then there's a massive sort of fireball which no one could possibly survive and spoiler alert he turns up at the end perfectly fine so it's it's great um yeah <laughs> there's a there's a ferry scene um similar to the book but no like I say no Thunder Child battleship so this this ferry it all goes a bit titanic the ferry gets turned over and everyone swims for their lives um <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, the, the I think the best scene in this actually, I don't know if you remember it, is is a bit which involves no martians. It's uh it, it's it's sort of a retelling of that panic that you get with the refugees in the book and the uh, Tom Cruise and his family are driving through this crowd of refugees and the crowd sort of panics and smashes it. dog always a bit sort of zombie apocalypse that the crowd smash open the car and drag yeah. him out. And then um, his car gets stolen and he only just manages to keep his, his daughter and his son together. But, um, yeah. Yeah. that sense of panic and the tension in that scene is really, really great. And you really believe yeah. it much more yeah. so than anything that's happening when the machines are around. Um, yeah. which is quite interesting that that was the best, best part of it. Um, yeah. What else have we got? Oh yeah, you mentioned. What do you remember about? What do you remember about Tim Robbins? Yeah, Andy Dufresne turns up. <laughs> 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 Apropos of nothing, which is great. Um, it's part of this basement scene. They go. They all hide in the basement, and you have the sort of tentacle, but with a big eye, goes searching for them. Ugh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, t- Tim Robbins is kind of a a mixture of the artilleryman. And the curate rolled into one. And he's also called Ogilvy, so it's sort of like one massive attempt to get loads yeah, of like, references. Okay, in. We've got
0: to give some sort of callback to this. Give him the funny name from the first bloke, and then roll the character together with the second thing. Put him in a basement. Get get DJ Roomba in there. It'll be fine.
1: <laughs> yeah. Do you remember what happens to Andy Dufresne in this? I'm going to in call this? him Andy Dufresne, by the way. Andy yeah.
0: Dufresne. Andy rather than Ogilvy. Um, uh,.
1: No, I don't actually know tom Tom Cruise kills him he's he sort of he tells his daughter to put her hands in her ears because it, the guy goes mad and starts shouting yeah. like like the curate does in the um yeah. In, yeah in in the book, but instead of sort of just knocking him out, Tom Cruise basically goes into a room and shuts the door and then he walks out five minutes later and he's obviously killed him. It's really dark <laughs> that is bleak <laughs> yeah yeah um. Strange. Wow.
0: Yeah, no, that's um that is surprising. Although I mean maybe that was the thing, maybe maybe Tom Cruise was like, I wanna kill him. And alright Tom, but well, we're gonna to have to take out all of the blood from elsewhere in the film. Fine, fine. I just wanna kill Tim Robbins. Can I kill Tim Robbins? I'm Tom Cruise, I'm gonna kill Tim Robbins, alright?
1: <laughs> um There's a bit when they're hiding in the basement, the tentacle comes down and has a look like um, sort of it's similar to the book. And then the Martians get out and just wander down and have a look round. Um they 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 kind of look like it's a bit disappointing. I was a bit disappointed with them. They kind of look like the aliens from Independence Day but just a little bit uh, more froggy. Yeah, so weak. Sort of, Yeah, froggy. So so there's none of the sort of tentacles or massive ear on the back or any <laughs> of that <kind> of stuff. <laughs> My kingdom for somebody that will finally do a version of The War of the Worlds which
0: is which is preposterously faithful to H G Wells' original ridiculous vision. Of 16 tentacles, eight on either side of a massive mouth, one <laughs> eye, and an ear the size of a satellite dish. That's what I want. Crawling slowly along the floor.
1: Yeah. One of the things I did like about the aliens, though, was when they come in, they come into the basement and have a look around, and they're fascinated by the bi- a bicycle wheel. And I, I thought that was just quite a, a nice, a neat callback to the book where the, the aliens haven't discovered the wheel. Um, yeah. Rather strangely. Yeah. yeah. Um, there, there is this whole thing about them sucking out the blood of people, like, like in the book, to eat. But the, the red yeah. weed seems to be sort of a combination of vegetation and also something something quite bloody, because when they touch it, it's, you, your hand is smeared with blood. Um, which is yeah, that's weird, horrific. isn't it? Like, hmm. as
0: an as a aesthetic choice. Because, hmm. I mean, is it are they putting the blood from the people they were eating into the weed? Or what?
1: Is it cutting know. people's yeah. hands? Yeah. I think I think it's supposed to be like it's sort of it's whatever waste is left. Um there's like extra blood left over when they've had a had a feed and it goes into the weed. I don't know. It's never explained, but there's just there's no. this there's this weird sort of horrific bloody feel to the red weed. Yeah. And it's not yeah. sort of this sort of swaying big sort of vegetation. It's more just like a yeah, a weed that covers the ground. Um <laughs> they get picked up by the tripod, one of the tripods, and stored in these little baskets. They're like little snack boxes for the um, for the tripods. So it's just this sort of like cage of the damned where everyone's screaming and can't get out. And a shopping um, basket
0: of the damned, surely. shopping
1: basket of the damned. And every so often, like some like one guy, everyone's stuck in it with Tom Cruise and his little girl and a lot of other people. And then this tentacle comes down and grabs a guy and like sucks him up into the. Uh, into the ship to get eaten. And then it comes down again and grabs Tom Cruise. And like basically everybody goes, Oh no, not Tom Cruise and they all decide to save him. And um <laughs> He was the best of us. And they manage to sort of they manage to save him and instead of sucking him up, it sucks a grenade up and explodes. So they survive. <laughs> <laughs> Think fast, aliens <laughs> Yeah, and at, it, at the end, it um, it ends in the same way uh, the aliens get sick and are killed by bacteria. Although this also means for some reason that the, the aliens get sick and then accidentally switch off the shields so the Americans get the chance to blow one up. So um, they, like,
0: get sick and then in the middle of their, like, <laughs> mad fever just go, oh, I don't want the, the shields anymore. They're keeping me... I don't want, I just want to blow my nose. I'm going to turn the shields off. Uh, turn off the shields.
1: Stab. <laughs> that really, did, that really did feel like um, a, a, an executives in the room decision, like towards the end. And like, so Stephen, what happens at the end? And then just the bacteria kills them all, right? Right. So, are you trying to say that we go through this entire thing and the great U.S. army doesn't kill a single one of them? Yeah. Could the shields just sort of be taken down just before <laughs> the end? <laughs> <laughs> and then we get to blow one up. Yeah, yeah, we could do that. Well, let's do that. Just so so the people who aren't really watching think that we just blew them up in the end, like Independence Day. Okay, yeah, we'll do that. Yeah, we'll do that. that'll do it.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. We need to we need to show them that that's what we
1: do. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So that's the um the so, so 2005 version. I I, I it's well worth a. It. It, it did quite like the 1953 version. Critically, it it, it did rather well, and um, yeah, it's worth a watch. But I wouldn't say it's the greatest. Sort of, if you if you're watching, thing is the first time I watched this, I didn't like it, and I liked it more this time. But I think it was the first time because every single thing it did that wasn't the original, (laughs) even from the very start when it wasn't set in Victorian England, uh, really annoyed me. So (laughs) I never gave it a chance. If you give it a chance and accept it for what it is, it's it's worth a watch. Yeah, but it's a bit cliched. I will say that, (laughs) especially. Knobheads. So. I don't think that can be denied. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, um, that is, that, that's, that are all the versions that I had. Um, there is a couple more things I wanted to mention. Um, yeah. One being, and this is the exciting news that I trailed last week, Dave. Mm. This is the end of our War of the Worlds coverage. Yeah. But is it? Because, <laughs> because, um, there is a three-part BBC drama that is currently being filmed. Really? <laughs> which, is, which, which is set in Victorian England, which oh, I'm very excited yes. about. <laughs> Brilliant. And, and the, the second thing I wanted to say was, the Martians are gone, but are they really? Because, uh. <laughs> I don't know if you know this, but I, I just came across this doing the research. There is a um, fighting machine In, in Woking, like in the town centre, they got a model of one. No, seriously. Yeah, check it out on. uh, on, on, Just Google it. That's beautiful. That's like that's like somebody
0: remembered that we're a town that and they have like three hundred thousand people living there or something. You know, they're so close to London. I can imagine them being like, somebody remembered us. Quickly, we will build a statue of the thing that destroyed us to placate the angry fictional gods.
1: Yeah, these marshes put us on the map. I mean, they wiped us off the map as well, but they put <laughs> us on. The-
0: <laughs> but for a moment,
1: for a moment,
0: that's where we were. Uh, yeah. All right, let me see. I've got got the old uh, image, uh, the old image search going on here. Man, looks something up on the internet is
1: also is classic podcast.
0: <laughs> Fucking somebody actually did it.
1: That's yeah. hilarious. Yeah, the crazy son of a bitch. He did it. So, um, but I, so,
0: yeah. I, what the, not only have they got a statue of the tripod thing, they've also got a statue of HG Wells, yeah, holding what looks to be a sort of cyberpunk bowling ball.
1: <laughs> yeah, so so if visit you, Woking, I guess. <laughs> yeah, so if you're looking for a little sort of war of the worlds pilgrimage, head over to Woking, take a look at the old um, <laughs> the old fighting machine there.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, so yeah, so so that is um, that is it from us we may and we may give it a quick revisit for the uh, BBC series i don't know see how we feel but yeah. uh, just dev i think it's time for you to get your final thoughts on the series as a whole the book and its its children
0: yeah well like i say i think it's really interesting the way it's managed across so many different formats to to somehow inspire these kind of Works of art that I still need a word for And I don't have These things which are like groundbreaking at the time And are a huge deal for that reason But which are quite quickly superseded By other things in the same in the traditions they found or define, which are much easier to get along with. And it's really interesting to me that there are some, the, the book and then the 53 film and then the musical, and we'll forget the Spielberg Cruise version of the film, which sounds to me like the most generic Spielberg Cruise thing imaginable. And I liked Minority report, by the way. Um, but um, it's really interesting to me that it is, the ideas in it are so rich that they've managed to inspire um you know these kind of like foundational works in in so many different kind of traditions, and for that I think you've got to, you've got to give it the credit you've got to take it seriously it's it's um in all of its different formats it's definitely got some elbows on it, and all sorts of weird decisions have been made in the way that it's been translated to the stage or the screen or from the book but um overall i can't think of anything else off the top of my head that's this sort of dense with ideas I mean you've got to go to something like again it's I mean it's in sci-fi it's 2001 and in other genres I don't even know you know for the novel you'd have to go back as far as sort of um, uh, Robinson Crusoe you know for this thing that, that founded an idea of a format so effectively um yeah, so uh, great, really fascinating. Um loved it, really think it stands up. Uh as I say, lots of holes, but um but the sheer scale of the achievement just kind of overshadows those and um and I loved it, yeah, it was great.
1: Hmm. Well, there we go. Uh, I was I would uh I would say I agree completely. Thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed it. Um cracking, cracking I think we may well return to an HG Wells again as well because it's been a oh yeah it sort of lends itself quite well to the podcast so thanks HG enjoyed that I mm-hmm. uh, hope you enjoyed the uh, the series too we'll be back with a new book uh, shortly so do stay subscribed uh, but until next time Dave until next time man happy reading thank you bye bye